This is a recording from the University of Virginia's More Than a Score lecture series, brought to you by UVA's Lifetime Learning Program in the Office of Engagement. Thomas Jefferson called the architectural treatise by Andrea Palladio his Bible, and encouraged others to use it as he did. However, Jefferson's knowledge of Palladio and of classical architecture was largely at second hand and through printed sources, which were in turn interpretations of Palladio's work. This led to creative misinterpretations that had an impact on Jefferson's masterpiece, The Lawn at the University of Virginia. Bruce Boucher, director of the UVA Art Museum, explained to an audience at Alumni Hall on September 1, 2012. He's introduced by Cindy Frederick, associate president of alumni and parent engagement at the University of Virginia. Welcome everyone to this great morning. It's my pleasure to be here and to welcome our kickoff speaker, uh, Mr. Bruce Boucher, who is an architectural historian and museum cur curator and is dir the director of the recently renamed Fraylin Museum Art at the, mu at, the at the University of Virginia. Mr. Boucher's career as a historian, educator, and museum curator spans more than 35 years, including serving as curator of the European Sculpture at the Art Institute of Chicago. In addition, Mr. Boucher is an expert on the 16th century Italian architect Andrea Palladio, whose work has had profound influence on the architecture of the Western world. Thomas Jefferson studied Palladio's work in preparation for his design of UVA's Academical Village. He is the author of numerous books, including Andrea Palladio, The Architect in His Time, and he lectures frequently on Palladio as well as other Italian artists. Mr. Boucher has received various honors and fellowships. He has served as guest scholar at the J. Paul Getty Museum and guest curator on research department of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Most recently, Bruce co-curated an exhibit originating from the Fraylin Museum Art with a fellow faculty member on the great artist Bartolo Di Freddi, where he reunited a masterpiece for the first time in 200 years. It is now a featured exhibit at the Museum of Biblical Art in New York and was recently covered by the New York Times, who claimed that it was perfect and a sterling example of what university museums do best. Congratulations on that, and please join me in welcoming Bruce Boucher to More Than the Score. I must confess that um, I thought this morning perhaps of scrapping my uh, prepared talk and uh, bringing out two empty chairs. <laughs> For, for Thomas Jefferson and Andrea Palladio so that we could really get to the bottom of the lawn. But I thought that might be too much psychodrama for 10 a.m. So you'll have to bear with me if uh, I give you my version. And I thought for the inaugural uh, lecture for more than the score this year, it would be appropriate to go back to where it all began, to the lawn of the University of Virginia. Because I think if anything embodies Thomas Jefferson's axiom, knowledge is power, it is the lawn with the rotunda as the still central point in the cosmos that he created and coming out from it like two arms embracing the population, the university and the surrounding community, the colonnades and pavilions. 
it was really um, a enlightenment dream come true. And what interests me as an architectural historian is the way in which both the Renaissance and, of course, people of Jefferson's age would look at uh, the cultural ruins of antiquity, uh, which were incomplete, and when uh, often with mismatches between descriptions, printed descriptions of the ancient world and the ruins that they could see in Rome and other parts of Italy. And it's the creative synapse between the, what they saw on the ground and how they conjured up the explanation for them, how they domesticated them, that uh, led to uh, new creations which tell us a lot about uh, ourselves. Certainly, for the lawn, Jefferson used the building blocks of the classical orders of architecture as reinterpreted and systematized by Renaissance theoreticians like Palladio, from the humble Tuscan uh, columns, the stubby little Tuscan columns that we know that create the colonnades in front of the student rooms, the one-story student rooms, to the nobler Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian, which are two stories high, by and large, and signify the pavilions where the students would study on the first floor and the professors lived on the second floor. This um, architecture is um, what I want to talk about today and the way in which Jefferson and Palladio misunderstood certain elements and how this impacted the design of the lawn. But I want to begin not with a quote from Jefferson so much as a quote from a younger contemporary of his, Johann Wolfgang Goethe. Goethe wrote in 1786, just as he was beginning an Italian journey, I realize how much I am behind in the fine arts, but I will proceed. At least now I know the way. Palladio has taught it to me. Jefferson would certainly have endorsed those words because Goethe and Jefferson were at one with most people of their generation in their veneration for Andrea Palladio. And indeed, the 18th century, as you probably know, was the high watermark of an architectural movement called Palladianism, which took its name, if not always, its principles from the architecture of the 16th century Italian. Jefferson, as you probably know, often referred to Palladio's four books of architecture, his treatise as the Bible, encouraging people to get it and study it. And it's difficult today to imagine the hold over the collective imagination of the Western world that Palladio held down to the beginning of the 19th century. And for those of you who don't know much about him, let me just give you a brief survey. And here I'm showing you, in fact, two of the orders that Jefferson used from the original version of Palladio's book, the, on the left, the little Doric columns, which had very wide spaces between them. Palladio particularly recommended them for agricultural buildings on farms because they're wide enough for carts to come in and out without hitting the columns. And then the much nobler uh, Corinthian order, which was considered higher in the hierarchy of, of, the, uh, of the four orders as they were known in Palladio's time. So this is what Palladio, we think he looks like. We don't even know really what he looks like, which is probably 
the fact that he's a rather shadowy character is perfect for someone who's the founder of a movement, a bit like Scientology. So, <laughs> um, but nonetheless, through his buildings and his writings, he had enormous influence. And here I'm showing you the Villa Rotunda, which is probably his most influential building, the one in which he took the dome, which was heretofore sanctified for religious architecture, and domesticated it, used it for a private dwelling. Palladio spent most of his career in the northeast corner of Italy, which is known as the Veneto, and that time it was the land empire of the Venetian Republic. And his career oscillated between Vicenza, where he practiced for most of his life, small town, about uh, two hours ride from the city of Venice, and then in the last decade of his life, he died in 1580 in Venice itself. In particular, it was the distinctive fusion of the classical and the vernacular that lent uh, cachet to Palladio's architecture. And here I'm showing you two of his villas, and it was really his villas, um, his domestic architecture, that had the most immediate impact on later architects across Europe, particularly in England and then, of course, here in the southern states of the United States. And it was the way in which he took the temple portico, the columns and the triangular pediment from Roman temples and applied them in scale to domestic architecture. So they became the center, the focal point. He said that you could use the tympanum here, the triangular pediment, as a place to put the owner's coat of arms so that it becomes a visual embodiment of the dominion of the owner over his land. And this was, in fact, a creative misinterpretation. Uh, Palladio believed, uh, on the basis of uh, misconstruing the evidence on the ground, that Roman palaces looked like Roman temples. So therefore, if Roman temples had porticos, palaces could have porticos too. Now, Jefferson's esteem for Palladio was largely, as I said, a bookish one. He never saw any of his uh, works. But when he went to Europe in the 1780s, he had occasion to see reflections of Palladio's architecture in contemporary buildings like Chiswick, which I'm showing you on the left, in an engraving. Uh, this was a little extension to um, an older mansion house that uh, the founder of English Palladianism, Lord Burlington, had built in the 1730s. It was only 68 feet wide. It looks monumental here, but contemporaries said of it that it was too small to live in, but too big to put on your watch chain. <laughs> it, was, it was really an architectural laboratory, which in a way is what Monticello was for Jefferson. And although Jefferson went to see it with John Adams, he professed not to like it. But then he was determined not to like very much that he saw in England. But nonetheless, he did incorporate elements of Chiswick, particularly the dome, uh, into uh, Monticello. When he went to Paris, as our man in Paris, he found architecture and culture much more to his liking. There he studied the latest modern architecture, particularly contemporary houses like the Hotel de Salm, which we see here. Um, it was under construction in 1786, and he described himself as violently smitten with it. He also was particularly smitten with another building, which he saw on his trip to the south of France. This was the only classical temple that he knew, the Maison Carré in Nîmes. And he wrote 
that about it that he gazed at it for long hours like a lover at his mistress. And there's this theme in his architecture that uh, for him uh, buildings were almost or as important as uh, a lover. And they were a recurring theme in his architecture. And of course, the Maison Carré. And here I'm showing you a painting of it from 1786. It's a kind of imaginary creation of the antiquities of Nîmes by Hubert Robert. But it's just the year in which Thomas Jefferson stood in front of it and sketched it. And of course, next to it, I'm showing you the reconstruction of, or the presentation of the facade of the Maison Carré by Palladio in the fourth of his four books of architecture. And interestingly enough, even though Palladio publishes it and describes it in some detail, he never saw it. He was relying on an earlier French publication of it, which he then adapted. Uh, he recopied the woodcuts for his woodcuts in the fourth book of the Quattro Libri. Jefferson had many books on architecture in his library, and he had, of course, seen much more of the world than most Americans of his day. But he still returned to Palladio and insisted upon his primacy as an architectural guide. But the question is really, which Palladio was he talking about? And I'm showing you here two versions of the elevation of the Villa Rotunda by Palladio. The one on the right is Palladio's own, the one that he sanctioned in the 1570 publication of the Quattro Libri. The one on the left, which is, if you put the books next to each other, twice as big, a big folio volume, is the English translation that was published by Giacomo Leone, a Venetian architect, in London between 1715 and 1720. Jefferson owned the English version by Leone, but he owned it in a later reprint of 1742. And so this is the Villa Rotunda as Jefferson knew, and on the right, what Palladio published. Leone, as you can see, didn't hesitate to add his own embellishments to Palladio's designs, most notably the windows, the ocular windows that you see in the dome, which do not appear in Palladio. At the same time, uh, the English translation that Leone used was not supplied by him, but was supplied by a Dutchman from a French translation of Palladio that had been published in the late 17th century. So you can see it's a bit like that. It becomes a bit like that game where people sit in a, tel in a circle and you whisper something and it goes round. By the time it gets to the other end, it's a bit altered. Now, there's more to it, though, than this, because if we then compare Palladio's published version with the actual Villa Rotunda, you can see that Palladio, too, was not, as it were, telling the truth. Um, he publishes here this semicircular dome, which looks more ecclesiastical than the little stepped dome that was actually built. So what is going on? I think when Palladio published his book in 1570, he used it as an occasion to look back over a career that already was uh, three decades long. And he didn't hesitate to bring up to date some of his earlier projects, which were already you know, more than 20 years old, and even a building that was going on at the time the book went to press. Uh, the Villa Rotunda was begun in 1569. He published in it what he wanted to build, 
not what was actually built. And you can imagine probably he showed this design to the patron, and the patron said, no, it's too expensive. We'll go for the lower profile, cheaper um, step dome. <laughs> and I don't think it ever occurred to Palladio that hundreds of years later, people would come with the book in hand looking for these buildings and noticing the uh, discrepancies. And until the 18th century with the Grand Tour, this was exactly what happened. Palladio, the transmission of knowledge of Palladio was largely literature, literary from his original editions to copies in French, German, Spanish even, some 30 different editions which truncated, published one book, not the rest, altered the illustrations, so on and so forth, blended them with other books. So it, was, it became a, a bit of a stew. And if we go back to Goethe, whom I quoted a few moments ago, you can see uh, in his description of going to Vicenza and going to, to Venice the bafflement that he felt. He discovered when he went to Vicenza that not all of Palladio's buildings were finished. And here I'm showing you one of them, which was only two bays wide. Um, and Goethe, in his notes, uh, he wrote a, a diary, which he then published uh, in 1816 as a travelogue about his time in Italy. And you can see that he's making sense of this. And he, he concluded that Palladio's noble buildings, as he described them, had been defaced by the filthy habits of men who did not understand his superior mind. Palladio, in his interpretation, was a misunderstood genius. In Venice, he had admired in the book the three pages that Palladio devoted to a big religious composition, commission he had, a convent, the convent of the Carità. You know it today as part of the Academia Gallery in Venice. And Goethe was shocked that this design was only achieved in a small corner of the courtyard, this here. Roughly one-tenth of Palladio's design as he sets it out in the, convent, con in the uh, four books of architecture. More shocking still was Palladio's interpretation of the Temple of Minerva at Assisi. This was a late antique temple in the center of Italy, in central Italy, in the town of St. Francis. Goethe went out of his way to go there to see this temple, which he knew from Palladio's book. He'd studied Palladio's book in Germany before he set out on his, uh, his tour. And he was so surprised by the difference between the facade that he saw and the facade as presented by Palladio that he called Palladio's uh, rendering of it a monstrosity. And he reluctantly concluded that Palladio never saw it, and he was relying good-naturedly on someone else's uh, account of the building. But in point of fact, Palladio did go there. We know that he went through Assisi on a number of occasions. And what he was simply doing was altering the facade to fit his own architectural biases uh, to do what the the Roman architect should have done if he'd been better informed. <laughs> and Goethe, in his pages on Palladio, um, which are about two very pungent uh, pages, sums up his attitude towards his admiration and um, underlying uh, anxiety 
with a, a wonderful description, I think, of, of, of the enduring power of Palladio's compositions. He says there's something divine about his compositions, like the power of a great poet who takes from the world of truth and the world of fiction to create a third world whose borrowed existence enchants us. And this, I think, is at the root of the mystique of Palladio even today. As I said, Jefferson never had the opportunity to go to Italy. He briefly was in Turin and Genoa, and then he had to <coughs> excuse me, turn around and go back to France. He had what he called a peep into Elysium. So the books, particularly Palladio's, became very important to him. And when he was designing the university's lawn, they became fundamental to the building blocks, to the way he interpreted the building blocks of classical architecture. He used not only Palladio's treatise, but also another book, which I'm showing you here, an engraving from a 17th century reprint of a 16, of a, no, sorry, 18th century reprint of a 17th century treatise, which looked at Palladio, Scamazzi, other Renaissance architects' interpretation of antiquity and juxtaposed it with Vitruvius, the Roman uh, theoretician of architecture, and also presented some of the orders that Palladio didn't illustrate, such as this Doric order from the Baths of Diocletian. And what Jefferson clearly liked about it was the frieze, which had this sun god in it. And you see that in Pavilion 1, the frieze here. I'm sorry, it's not very visible, but you can have a check later, a fact check. <laughs> um, and these are the distinguishing features of the pavilions. And he wanted the pavilions to serve as a kind of outdoor lecture theater for professors and students. And so each one has a different order taken from a different model of Roman architecture. Now, ironically, Jefferson's <coughs> veneration for Pilate was not shared by the one architect whom he relied on and who also played a critical role in the lawn as we know it today. And that was Benjamin Latrobe. He was exactly a generation younger than Jefferson. He was born in England. He had the benefit of professional architectural training and also exposure to continental European architecture that Jefferson never had. He was fond of saying, he came to the United States in the 1790s, mid-90s, and he was fond of saying that he was the only trained architect in America, which was largely true at that time. Uh, now, the years of Latrobe's training were marked by the discovery and publication of ancient Greek architecture, beginning in the 1760s, and also by the excavations of Pompeii and Herculaneum, which revolutionized the way in which people thought about Roman domestic architecture. People began to realize that the Romans lived in a much more intimate uh, asymmetrical way than Palladio and his contemporaries imagined them living. They imagined them living in structures that were like the Roman baths because that's what they knew of a kind of quasi-domestic architecture. And early on in his career in the 1790s before he went to America, uh, Latrobe built a country house in Sussex and he didn't use one of the Roman classical orders but he used a Greek order and here I'm showing you the Greek order from a book called The Antiquities of Athens, which was published 
in three volumes beginning in 1764, and it showed you, and we'll come back to this again in a little while, the, this order, which is not quite a Corinthian order, it's the order of the Tower of the Winds, and you can see that he uses it here on this staircase in this house in uh, Sussex. What the publication of this book and also travel in Greece did was to undermine the authority of Palladio with a younger generation of architects. They began to question whether they were infallible guides to antiquity. And also they discovered, as one contemporary of Latrobe, the great German architect Schinkel said, there were many interesting buildings in Italy and Greece that had been built without reference to the rules of Palladio. <laughs> Latrobe echoed these sentiments about Palladio, and while he was architect of the Capitol in Washington under Jefferson, he wrote, Palladio and his successors and contemporaries endeavored to establish fixed rules for the most minute parts of the orders. The Greeks knew no such rules, but having established <coughs> general proportions and laws of form and management, all matters of detail were left to the talent and taste of the individual architect. And this is amply proved in their best building. And here I'm showing you a juxtaposition of Palladio's Roman Ionic capital next to the much larger Greek Ionic uh, that was only discovered in the late 18th century and then was instrumental in creating a new type of Ionic capital, which was part of what's called Greek revival architecture. Again, in a letter of 1810, Latrobe said to a friend of his, the books lie as regards ancient architecture. They tell you what Palladio and others opined, not what the Greeks or Romans actually did. Latrobe called himself a bigoted Greek and loved to use the Greek uh, orders as he did in the Cathedral of uh, Baltimore. Uh, but there was one area in which he, like many 18th century architects and uh, dilettantes, did acknowledge Palladio, and that was in Palladio's interpretation of the Roman baths. And here, and I hope you can see it, um, is a ground plan from, drawn by Palladio of the baths of Diocletian, which was one of the more complete Roman thermal complexes that survived uh, to the modern day. In fact, it's still used for operas. Um, if you, sorry, that's the baths of Caracalla. It's still visible in the center of, of Rome today. What Latrobe said about the Roman baths was that he admired them for their immense size, the bold plans and arrangement of the buildings. They were popular from the middle of the 18th century thanks to the rediscovery of Palladio's drawings of them, which Palladio had intended to uh, publish but never lived long enough to do. They were acquired, most of them, in Italy by Lord Burlington, in 1719, and then in 1740, he began publishing them without any kind of commentary. But the scale of them was something that caught the imagination of neoclassical architects. And here I'm showing you Palladio's drawing, which Burlington owned and uh, which the Burlington family still own, of the elevation of the Roman pantheon and 
with it the baths of Agrippa, which Palladio believed were part of one big complex. As I said, Burlington published these plates and they drew international attention to Palladio's diligence in uh, surveying these great and complex buildings which range from substantially intact ones such as the Baths of Diocletian uh, and Caracalo to more conjectural ones such as this one, the Baths of Agrippa and the uh, Baths of Constantine. Palladio visited Rome five times between the 1540s and 1550s to survey the ruins and making laboriously copies of what he saw on the ground measuring and then going back to his studio in Vicenza and creating these fair copies which were intended for publication. This is the center of a very large sheet of the Baths of Constantine which virtually do not survive. So it's largely Palladio's imagination that we see here. But he took the pattern of the Baths of Caracalla and the Baths of Diocletian to create this theme, this repetitive theme that you find in all of his um, reconstructions, which um, also informed, of course, his religious architecture. And that was this combination of large and small orders, different kinds of vaulting. And usually at the center of the complex was a rotunda symbolized in San Giorgio by the dome and symbolized here in the Baths of Constantine by this domed structure which is like the Pantheon in Rome. It was inspired by the Pantheon in, in Rome. It seems clear that the Baths of Caracalla and Diocletian created a template that Palladio used in these drawings which were then reprinted first by Burlington and then in this book which is uh, a 1772 publication by a Scottish architect, Charles Cameron, who went back and reprinted the drawings in Burlington's collection, in some cases with adjacent engravings of his own measurements of the baths so that he could say that, you know, here Palladio got it wrong and it gave a kind of cachet to his book, a reason for buying it. In addition, where Burlington just published these plates without any kind of indication of where they came from, what they were, uh, Cameron put them together and arranged them according to the Baths of Diocletian, Constantine, the Baths of Titus, so on and so forth. We're looking here at the Baths of uh, Agrippa. And I think it was this particular reconstruction by Palladio that had a direct influence on Jefferson's lawn. Now the original complex of the Baths, you can see here as created by, reconstructed by Palladio, and this is almost wholly imaginary. And here, of course, the Pantheon, which did survive. And what was known was that the same man was the original patron of both, Marcus Vipsius Agrippa, who was the son-in-law of the Emperor Augustus and had founded in around 25 BC the Pantheon, and then subsequently had given the money for the thermal complex which bore his name. It was known that the baths were south of the Pantheon and that the two structures were aligned axially. Now, in his plan of the Pantheon in the four books, and I'm showing it to you here, Palladio alludes to the connection by this fragment of a building which you see here in his fuller is amplification of the whole 
spot. And if you go to the Pantheon today and you go behind it, you'll see that there are the remnants of a big basilical structure. Nobody knows exactly what it is or what its purpose was. And, but Palladio uses this as the pretext for assuming that the baths were en suite with the temple. What he doesn't do, what he doesn't seem to have figured out, is how you got into it. Because if you look here, there's no doorway, there's no passageways between the niche of the Pantheon and this complex behind it. So that was something that he left uh, hanging. What we now know is that um, the modern archaeology has shown that the baths were separate from the Pantheon and were a few hundred feet away, and they were not as grand or as symmetrical as, as Palladio assumed. They were irregular, they were smaller, they were more like the kinds of buildings we see when we go to Pompeii or Herculaneum. Now, for Palladio and most Renaissance architects, the idea that a big complex like this wouldn't be symmetrical, wouldn't be balanced, was literally incredible because they had this belief that Roman architecture, classical architecture, was much more systematic and symmetrical uh, and balanced than it actually was. It was they who created this idea of the hierarchy of the orders and sought to systematize the scale of the columns, the distance between the columns for each of the different four orders. This was not something you found in antiquity. They also gave them personalities, the Doric being more robust and masculine, the Ionic and Corinthian more, like, uh, more feminine. All of this really is the result, basically, of overwriting by the Renaissance of bits and pieces, scattered references in uh, ancient architecture. Now, there's an additional element here which I think has resonance for the lawn, and that was that Cameron, and I'm showing you here the frontispiece of his edition of uh, the Baths of the Romans from 1772. It was a bilingual edition, very large folio. And in it, in his discussion of the Baths of Agrippa, he repeats a popular view in the 18th century that the Pantheon was not a temple, but it was a grand entrance to the thermal complex, to the Baths of Agrippa. In other words, it was a secular structure and in his account of this, he quotes a large chunk of a pamphlet that had been published in 1749 by an Italian cleric called Pietro Lazzeri, in which he argued that the Pantheon was secular in origin and it only became uh, a temple when it was Christianized in the 6th century AD. Cameron elaborated on this in his description of the synergy between the Pantheon and the Baths, writing that in the Baths there were theaters, amphitheaters, basilicas, beside the amazing number of chambers, the other necessary accommodation for the purposes of bathing. They were furnished with spacious halls and porticos for walking, with exedrae and seats for the meetings of the philosophers. The most complete libraries in the city were transported thither. thither. In short, they represented an academical village in embryo. And this brings us back to the genesis of the lawn. We know that Jefferson began designing a central college from 1814, and he wasn't happy with his original configuration. 
which was for a series of 10 pavilions around a large rectangle. And this is a, a drawing of uh, an elevation by Jefferson for Pavilion 7, which, as you know, is the first pavilion was actually built. But in Jefferson's original design, at the center of the lawn was another pavilion. He realized that this wasn't quite right, that there needed what he called some principal building at the center of the lawn. And he sought help, as he often did, from professional architects. In 1817, he wrote to William Thornton, Thornton, who was the first architect of the Capitol, and also to his friend Benjamin Latrobe, soliciting their ideas for the pavilions and for the um, general uh, design of the building. Latrobe wrote a letter to Jefferson in July of 1817, and this is a page from it in which he sketches out his solution for the north side of the lawn. As the architectural historian Fisk Kimball noted almost 100 years ago, Latrobe seems to have been the first to suggest the rotunda as the centerpiece, as well as the use of giant or large orders for some of the pavilions. Latrobe's sketch of the rotunda, linked to the pavilions by a large order of smaller colonnades, created, as he put it, a series of detached masses on different levels. He also proposed separating the pavilions from the rotunda to break up the potential monotony of Jefferson's original concept and also endorsed the idea of injecting variety into the facades through the use of a number of different orders. Moreover, in proposing the rotunda, Latrobe was clearly catering to Jefferson's architectural predilections, even down to the introduction of the ocular. You can't see it, but there are windows in the dome here, which was something Jefferson liked. In fact, when Jefferson was president and, and Latrobe was doing an early design for the dome of the Capitol, he said to him in a letter, why don't you introduce windows as Palladio did in the Villa Rotunda, not realizing, of course, that he was relying on this erroneous elevation by Giacomo Leone. And Latrobe also was drawing upon contemporary associations of the Pantheon with a type of large secular temple that seemed ready-made for the centerpiece of Jefferson's university. It's impossible to say whether Jefferson would have hit upon a similar plan on his own. He certainly admired buildings like the Pantheon because they embodied pure geometric forms and he proposed a pantheon as a model for the capital in 1791. And in 1792, he submitted anonymously a losing design for the White House, which was a clone of Palladio's Villa Rotunda. But like any good chief executive, Jefferson knew when to seek advice, and more importantly, whose advice to follow. In my opinion, Latrobe's brief but incisive engagement with the lawn imparted a visionary quality and vigor to it, which would have otherwise been lacking. If we allow Latrobe this decisive role in shaping the academical village, it is nonetheless true that it was Palladio's creative misunderstanding of the Baths of Agrippa and Latrobe's and Jefferson's on the nature of the Pantheon, which furnished the key to wielding mass, scale, and classical associations on the lawn creating what the poet Goethe would have called a beautiful fiction. Thank you. Um, 
I understand that um, there may be questions, so if someone would like to ask a question. Yeah. The question was, um, Brunelleschi designed the Dome of Florence Cathedral, and he was is considered the founding father of Italian Renaissance architecture, and where does he fit into this story? Uh, the short answer is he doesn't fit. Um, interestingly enough, by the 16th century, Brunelleschi had largely disappeared from the narrative. Uh, it sort of began again with uh, an architect called Bramante, who designed the new St. Peter's in Rome in 1506 and created uh, the foundation of the Dome of St. Peter's that we see today. It was said by a contemporary that he wanted to put the Dome of the Pantheon on the uh, Basilica of Constantine, and meaning that you know, these four great peers supporting a dome, which um, was a hybrid that antiquity had never seen. But Brunelleschi is obviously part of this uh, fascination. In fact, Brunelleschi's domes it's been pointed out, we're not really based on antiquity so much as medieval Byzantine domes of, uh, for instance, the baptistry of Padua Cathedral. So, but he is important, we now know, because we have a longer continuum than Palladio did. Yes, there's a question back there. I'm curious if the proportions of the lawn are based on some classical models of just space, or whether this is determined by Jefferson's selection of the 10 pavilions and some basic calculation that led to the size of the lawn itself? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I'm probably not the best person to answer it in detail. What I do know is that the, the original design of the lawn was done in abstraction. It was going to be much wider uh, than it was, but the land that Monroe sold to the state uh, didn't allow for that. So it had to be curtailed. And that's why you get the east and west range, too, to provide more rooms for the uh, students. Um, the basic, I don't think that, I'm not, I don't believe there's any numerological symbolism behind it. Jefferson certainly, like most Enlightenment people, believed that the most beautiful forms were the square, the rectangle, the circle, and that what was uh, harmonious and uh, beautiful was also good. Uh, this idea that um, being surrounded by these kinds of uh, forms somehow improved your mood, made you a better person, something like that. Uh, but in practice, they had to deal with the situation on the ground with the, the sloping, and they had to build up terraces. And if you look at the pavilions, the distance between them expands and contracts to, uh, dict as dictated by the terrain. So uh, I think that it, what's great about it is that it gives you this sense of wonderful symmetry and balance, but there's a lot of sleight of hand that masks the awkward points. And also, at the same time, before I came here, I'd, of course, been to um, Charlottesville a number of times and always loved the lawn. But my mental image of it was that all of the pavilions had the same order. They were all identical. And then, of course, when I came here, I saw that they weren't. And there's this sort of d interesting uh, discontinuity. And that was intended by Jefferson because he wanted to have a professor of fine arts who would lecture on the orders and the importance of the orders to the students. Because you know, it was important to him that the country be inoculated with what he thought was good architecture. When he was growing up, he said most buildings, public buildings, were little more than brick kilns. 
and that there were few people who could um, appreciate the orders. And the University of Virginia was important as a kind of mass indoctrination of architects and masons because it was the third largest building project in the 1820s after uh, the rebuilding of Washington after the War of 1812 and the Erie Canal. And Jefferson would lend out his Palladio to architects like John Nielsen and they would copy the orders. And then they would go off and they would build houses in Stanton or elsewhere. And so gradually through it, it was a way of disseminating this knowledge of the of classical orders. This, this one over here. Oh, sorry, sorry, yes. Um, maybe you started to answer my question, but I, I wanted to ask if you could discuss the asymmetries of the way the lawn turned out to your talk, or were the asymmetries as a result of just construction? Yes, um, I think, you know, Jefferson would love to have had uh, an ideal construction, but um, he did know from Renaissance um, commentaries on uh, architecture that the true challenge for an architect as um, one of Palladio's mentors, a man named Marcantonio Barbaro, who translated into Italian and commented on the Roman treatise by Vitruvius, one of his observations was that the true challenge of, an of a good architect was not being able to do something perfect in a site where there were no challenges, there were no problems, everything was laid out, low-hanging fruit, as it were, but it was in a difficult situation to attract, extract something from that. And I think that was the guiding principle with the, with the lawn. Um, it was, I mean, it is symmetrical in the sense that, you know, the pavilions face each other, but, you know, they aren't spaced identically going down because you're going down a hill. And enormous amount of work was required just to level off the terraces. Uh, so within the, the confines of what he was doing, um, it's an extraordinary achievement. And, and I think that it's, in my opinion, his architectural masterpiece much more so than Monticello. Monticello, I look upon as a bit like Lord Burlington's Chiswick. Um, it's an architectural laboratory. He was always experimenting, and you go there, and it's sometimes frustrating because the windows don't align, you know, you're sort of there these odd angles and dead space. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's just, you know, the, the reflection of someone who's constantly tinkering with, with things. So I don't know whether I've addressed your question but that's my take. Yes. Uh, thank you. There, there's been some, a little bit of hubbub recently about the, the magnolia trees around the rotunda. I'm curious the extent to which Jefferson had a vision for the landscape architecture elements and it, to the extent that what it's there today is consistent with or not consistent with his vision. Well, I don't believe the magnolia trees were part of it. Um, and, you know, that's always the interesting thing about what you say is uh, you touch on a very interesting point. Architecture like the lawn is, is like a, an organism. It's constantly growing, changing their accretions. I mean, we talk, if you look at Pavilion 10, uh, the way they've rebuilt it, the way they've changed the color of the columns so that they now are kind of done color, they're not white. Apparently, that kind of white was uh, based on a chemical which was only available in the 1850s, so that originally probably all of the colonnades would have looked brown. 
Um, in that case of tin, they know that the, the, the capitals in the bases are a kind of granite so that painting them that color in certain lights make it all look like it's stone from a distance. Um, again, the, the rotunda, what we see today is a combination of Jefferson overlaid by St Stanford White. Uh, and when you talk about you know, restoring it, what, what do we mean? Are we restoring it, are we going to restore it back to Jefferson's time, which is to take off the portico on the north side? Uh, are we going to change the configuration of the dome, which is Stanford White? I know in the seven, my brother's a triple who, and when I was, uh, he's six years older, and he graduated in 1964, and I remember coming here and seeing the rotunda and uh, being amazed by it, uh, and it reminded me of Penn Station in New York. And it was only later <laughs> that I realized they were by the same person, Stanford White. <laughs> you know, they had these great columns. And I was rather sad when I came back in uh, 1982, I think the next time, to see what they'd done to it. I thought this was not the rotunda I remembered. But, you know, it was an attempt to go back to Jefferson's original designs. And it's a very difficult problem. Are you going to make all, change the colors of all of the columns? to make them all brown the way they were originally. I mean, where do you draw the line? Where did it stop growing? It never stopped growing. And that's part of the fascination and the uh, challenge of it, I think. You suggest that the uh, spacing of the lawn rooms was dictated by terrain. Mm -hmm. It's commonly uh, spoken of here as an attempt to uh, improve the perspective as seen from the rotunda and to prevent the railroad track narrowing uh, that uh, is optically fixed by having them spaced farther apart as you go away. Well, that, that's and, uh, a good point. And it was suggested that this was a deliberate effort on Jefferson's Park. Well, I don't think he would have known about the railroad. Um, I don't think he was that clairvoyant, but um, certainly the optical effect, the perspective, he knew that from books on perspective and, you know, Bernini's colonnades in Rome create the sense of distance Make, making the facade of St. Peter's look taller because the um, way in which the uh, flanking buildings uh, diminish as they go away from it, um, or actually as they go towards it, and also the, the shape of the, of the piazza. You know, these are optical trip, tricks which you use, just as you know, the Palladio talks in the beginning of the Quattro Libri about the fact that uh, you need to have a swelling in the column about two-thirds of the way down to correct the optical illusion that if it's perfectly cylindrical, from a distance it will look concave. And this was something the Greeks discovered, and on the Parthenon they have this swelling on the columns to correct that kind of optical illusion. So uh, what we see is, is a, a very complicated... Um, composite of uh, elements to create a sense of normality, which if we followed a kind of literalism uh, would not come out that way. Yes, yes. Uh, originally, the design was to leave the, this end of the uh, lawn open. Mm -hmm. And of course, later, they've closed it. Would you comment on the difference in visions implied in that well, I, I'm glad you asked me that because I am a great fan of Stanford White, um, and I think he gets a bad press for Cabell Hall and the way that the lawn is closed, but you have to bear in mind that there was a road down there which was a defining boundary um, then as now, and uh, 
I think what he was called upon to do was a very brilliant solution to the problem of, of how to go beyond the lawn. Because Jefferson created this wonderful vision, but in a way it was also a kind of straitjacket. Um, Brooks Hall was the first building uh, built outside it, except, of course, for the uh, anatomy theater by, by Jefferson. And, of course, it was in a different style, and people complained about that. And then significantly, in the 1880s, after a long struggle, uh, a chapel was built on grounds. Jefferson, as you know, wanted the university to be completely non-sectarian. He believed very emphatically in the separation of church and state, despite what you hear from some people. Uh, and uh, when they built it, um, at the dedication, it was pointedly commented that they had chose, chosen the Gothic because the Gothic was a type of architecture that was suitable to the Christian religion, unlike the godless architecture of the lawn. <laughs> so when Stanford White came in uh, to rebuild the, the rotunda and also to build the president's house and to create more teaching spaces down there. Um, and previously, as you know, there was a big annex on the back of the, of the rotunda, which really uh, detracted from it. But they needed more space for classrooms, labs, etc. They decided not to rebuild the annex. And instead, they built the three halls down there. And I think what he did was very uh, brilliant uh, in that he chose Greek orders, Greek ionic columns, not the kind of Jeffersonian, Palladian, Ionic, to distinguish those three buildings from Jefferson's buildings. So it marks a kind of caesura, but I think it's a very elegant way to turn it into an open-air salon, which is, I think, what Jefferson wanted. Probably what Jefferson envisaged was that the pavilions would continue to go down the hill, that there, it was a kind of, how would you say, a kind of... Um, architecture, the additive, you could add more to it in the future. And he probably thought there may be another two. Who knows? But um, it didn't work out that way. But I would much rather look at uh, Cabell Hall than to look at a road. <laughs> yes? Are there any models in Renaissance architecture for Jefferson's serpentine walls? No. Uh, and that really, I think, is a, is a, a great question. Um, that's very much an 18th century um, concept. Um, in 18th century aesthetics, the serpentine was looked upon as a very beautiful form. The painter Hogarth wrote uh, an essay in which he said it was the most beautiful uh, form. And it's a great example of the way Jefferson confused utility with uh, aesthetics in that one of his constant problems with the legislature was that they were always uh, nickeling and diming him over the cost of uh, building. I suppose in those days it would have been pence and shilling him. Uh, but if you look at the drawings that he did for the facades of the pavilions, on the backs of them, he specifies the exact number of bricks so that they would know. And also the bricks on the facade are very fine, the best you can get on the sides less so. So there are all sorts of ways in which he, he could uh, cut corners. But the serpentine walls were a way of reducing the number of bricks in the walls, because they're only one brick thick. And they support themselves. It's like an arch turned over on its side. So it is visually very attractive. We would miss them. And uh, at the same time, it um, saved money. 
And, and to go back to your question, uh, he was very inter what, what was important to him was having gardens behind the pavilions. As we know, uh, he said of himself at, at one point in his long career, he said, I am an uh, old man but a young gardener. And uh, he loved gardening, and one of the best things to do at Monticello is to go on the tours of the lawn of Mulberry Row and to see what he did there, because that's as important, as interesting as, as the inside. And I think this idea of the garden is part of this neoclassical idea of the Platonic Academy, that this was a place where you could have intimate groups of reflection. There was a part of it that was private and a part of it that was published, public. I don't really know enough about landscape gardening to know uh, what sort of uh, planting he would have favored. But I do know that if you go to see a, a number of Palladian villas today, they too are uh, infected with magnolia trees, which were brought over in the late 19th century, and make them look very southern. But um, I'm afraid it's another misunderstanding. Yes? One last question. One last question. This gentleman here. I'd like to know your views on the architecture of uh, Darden, the law school, some of the buildings now that are off campus. <laughs> what can I say? I think <laughs> the audience responds. Um, that's, um, that's a personal question. <laughs> but. Um, I think that, let me answer it by um, telling you a story, a short story about Louis Kahn, the great architect of the uh, second half of the 20th century, who in the 1960s was surprisingly invited by President Shannon and the Board of Visitors to design new chemistry building. And Kahn created something, uh, submitted in 1962, which was extraordinary. It was a, three-sided rectangle, and in the center of it was a polygonal building inspired by a, an English castle. And in each of the corners there were cylinders, and this was going to be the lecture theater, and then the actual labs and everything would take place around it. Um, the Board of Visitors and uh, President uh, Shannon didn't like it, and Shannon had to fire Louis Kahn. And he wrote, him a, he wrote a letter to him and said that I'm so sorry that you chose to misinterpret the Jeffersonian tradition in the so-called modern style. And Louis Kahn wrote back uh, a letter in which he said, among other things, uh, I have the impression that what was wanted was another red and white building. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been a wonderful audience. Go Hoos! Thank you, Bruce. On behalf of the Office of Engagement and the Alumni Association, a small gift. Thank you so much. That was